again, and thank you for joining the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective ongoing series and reading of Anti-Oedipus. This is one of our roundtable sessions. Uh, today we're going to be going over the five syllogisms uh, and how uh, their critique of Oedipus plays into the rest of our lives. Uh, as always, you are free to join us at any time if you hit us up on Twitter at D-A-N-D-G-Q-C, D-N-G-Q-C. Uh, you can find our invites to Discord, you can find our SoundCloud recordings, all of our stuff, and you can join us live, which a good number of people have. We're excited to have you here. A uh, handful of uh, paralogisms. What did I What did I say? What did I say? Syllogisms. <laughs> oh, God. Paralogisms. Sorry. Paralogisms. I wrote down the wrong word in my notes because it was, it was a long, long weekend. Um, paralogisms. Five paralogisms. Uh, the, as we start diving further into some of these specific parts of anti-Oedipus, the challenge becomes that it is predicated upon understanding the things that have come before it, which themselves are predicating a lot of other reading. So what I'm going to try to do this week is give a very short summation of where we're at in anti-Oedipus, where the uh, five uh, paralogisms uh, come in and how they uh, sort of affect things. And how, how, how this works is this deals greatly with the, in general, the way that Deleuze and Guattari see our experience unfolding and how desire works. Um, as we've talked about last week and the week before with the body without organs, uh, this is not a, a, a system of sort of a, a specious unconscious, even a Lacanian uh, sort of uh, ordered unconscious, but instead a machinic unconscious that operates in a materialist way, machinic way. And the way that they have it operating is through the three syntheses, which is essentially how we deal with and have experiences. Uh, the first is that the first synthesis is that dire desire is produced upon the connection of a partial object. My finger glances my desk. Uh, baby's mouth touches mommy's breast. Uh, I drink from a cup. My lips touch that cup. Uh, these are all partial objects. They are not full subjects. It's one of the really important things to understand. This is not that Brooks drinks from a yellow cup, but instead Lip's cup is the connection like that. And there's a lot of these going on all the time. Finger cup, Lip's cup, tongue water, all of those things are part of the process that I would call Brooks drinks water. Uh, but each one of these connections is a, a production of desire in that moment. That's the first synthesis. This is a continuous process that is always happening. The second part is, of course, the connection gets broken. Uh, and there's a lot of ways that that can happen, but the connection's broken. And when it gets broken, the sensation that connection has is the term I want to use for this. And it's going to be a very simplified. This is baby's first anti-Oedipus, so please forgive me, anyone who's listening. But the sensation gets recorded, not uh, good or bad, productive or not, uh, anything, but it just generally the sensation. This process is continuous. And when the sensation's recorded, it's recorded on what we call the body without organs. Uh, now, the body without organs is something that's produced inside of this process, essentially through all of these different connections breaking and being made all the time. Again, this process is also continuous. Think of it as the cycle of connecting, breaking, connecting, breaking, connecting, breaking. And as these connections are broken, the sensations that are recorded are placed on like a giant grid along the body without organs. They're recorded on that surface. And the, uh, the way that these things are recorded aren't necessarily super ordered. Instead, we're able to sort of 
look between them and see our own version uh, of them, of, of relations between these different sensations. And this is how we develop essentially our system of signs, our relations to the world uh, and the system of signs that we sort of operate with. Then uh, when I say we, it's the third step. Uh, the, the third step of this is in this process, in this cloud of all of these connections being made and broken, made and broken, recorded, 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 uh, a uh, subject is created, a transient subject, not necessarily one with a fixed identity, but uh, let's call it an experiencer, <laughs> someone who's an experiencer of this, who looks back on these moments and on the body without organs, and they look back on the sensations, and because of the process, the beauty of the process, they're able to go, oh, I did that. And they're able to claim uh, sort of that they are the a priori cause. I wanted this to happen. I had this desire. I wanted to drink my mother's breast milk. I wanted to drink from that yellow glass. When in reality, it's more the connections and how the connections are working. So these three steps are essentially what's producing the, the subject as, as we know it. What's super unique about this, aside from all of it, obviously, is uh, the, the BWO and how it sits in the middle of this process becomes the center of our system of relations. Uh, when a, a sensation is recorded, it's not that I record that I enjoyed drinking from a yellow cup. It's that lips cup gave me a sensation, as did finger cup, as did tongue salt, as did uh, finger mouse, as did eyes screen. Uh, these are all different sensations, and as these sort of become related to each other, they individually are almost meaningless. Uh, they're uh, signs that are, as, as we might call them, as they call them, polyvocal. Uh, they, they have a great deal of possibilities. They aren't binary. They're able to connect in a lot of different ways to a lot of other signs. And the system of relations are very unique. And it's a, it's a really cool way that we're able to sort of see the world as the connective tissue of all of these things on the body without organs. Now, where the syllogisms come in is psychoanalysis for a great deal of... Sorry, go ahead, Jack. Paralogisms. Paralogisms. God damn it. This, this may be a problem. I apologize. This, this may be a problem. Syllogisms are the correct use of the syntheses, right? Paralogisms yes, yes, is what are. you're moving into now. This is... I, I read... I read uh, uh, not only all the critiques on these sections, I read all of these sections, and so my brain is like merging words. I so apologize, everyone. Um, so the, what happens is, and classically in inside of uh, psychoanalysis, and I would say psychoanalysis uh, society as large, we have we have things like uh, we call it the Oedipus complex. And when we look at Oedipus, it has some stuff that it does to us. Um, and ways that it looks at how our psyche is created, how our desire is shaped and formed that are poor uses of these connective syntheses that, that actually break it, that do harm to it and even uh, undermine it, force it sort of, uh, we, can, we can say, underneath the surface. And they call these uh, problems with it that Oedipus has, and also we will see uh, capital and a lot of other things, uh, they, they call them the five paralogisms. Now, each one of these is uh, something that layers onto the next one. As we start discussing these, all that I just said is going to come into play. So at any point, you can feel free to ask questions, raise your hand, whatever it is. This is not an easy discussion. This is a difficult one. But we are going to dive into, I think, uh, the first one, which is, to me, the easiest to grasp. 
which is the first, the paralogism of displacement, or uh, we can call the critique of representation. Uh, the paralogism of displacement is uh, essentially what Oedipus does at a, at a basic level, which it produces, it presents an image of a law that uh, uh, tells you what you can't desire. It's a really interesting thing because it does this weird thing where it basically gives you a rule prohibiting incest. It says you can't want to fuck your mom. And then what happens is you see this and you go, huh, well, I didn't know I wanted to fuck my mom. I guess I wanted to fuck my mom and I can't do that. This process they call the double bind. This is the rule of prohibiting incest. Now, how I read this is this is a, and Ken, uh, Ken's here, thank God. So. This is psychoanalysis is going to be a huge part of this. Um, how, how I read this, and I've, I've gone through a bunch of stuff, is that uh, Freud saw the rule of this as being something that is uh, natural, that is a, a cause and effect, that, uh, oh, naturally you do want to fuck your mom, and the effect of that is that you want to fuck your mom. And we have to work against that. You have to understand that you can't fuck your mom. And because of that, the setup becomes really unique in that you're basically repressing desire. And that is the response to this is he just, you need to understand you can't have that. Instead, you need to do these things to be cured of it. For Deleuze and Guattari, though, because of their unique process of how we develop signs and how we develop our relationships with signs, the way that they discuss this is instead of saying it's cause and effect, it's actually a three-step process through which it breaks things. The first is through the repressing representation, um, which is the signifier of incest. And by repressing representation, it's the rep representation of a thing that does the repressing. Uh, incest is the thing that does the repressing. Then there's the displaced represented, which is the Oedipus complex, the, the thing Oedipus produces. It's the, the displaced sense of your desire. And then the third step is the repressed represented, which basically essentially makes you force your desire, we'll say, under the surface uh, inside of social production. These three steps basically make you think that you actually desired this thing prior to when desire was created, but you didn't. This is a long way of me talking through that first paralogism. This is how I understood it as I was reading over the weekend. Please tear it apart. Oh gosh, <laughs> it's like somebody reading you a 16 page paper and saying, I okay, know it's a lot. Crit let's criticize. <laughs> yeah, no, well, let's take it from the beginning. So the first thing the paralogism of displacement does is it presents an image of a of it presents a rule. It says, this is how things are, the, the, the natural way that things are. And in this case, it's incest. We're going to use Oedipus as the example here. Uh, and so basically the rule itself, by prohibiting, it's also intentionally saying, well, you also desire this thing. That's my understanding of the paralogism of displacement. The rule, in, the rule infers the uh, desire exists. Okay. So this is tough for me as I was thinking of displacement and how Oedipus displaces the limit, right? And this is a major thing, especially when we talk about the socius and the BWO, right? The BWO being a limit of the socius. I thought that was more directly in the fourth paralogism. And part of the reason for that is, um, so I, I have some notes on the first syllogism and they're mm -hmm. talking about it. If I remember correctly in chapter three, they call it, uh, um, it's not about lack, it's about 
or rather it's not about lack through absence, it's about lack through presence, which is deprivation, right? Obviously there's a huge ethical connotation of being deprived, but uh, there's also a, a simple point here, right? So, right, as I understand it, like something like the object A is something inaccessible, right? So there's kind of this, you can kind of see where I'm going with this. So there's an inaccessibility to it and lack works through that inaccessibility, you've got a problem here because it's it's like it's absent and present simultaneously, right? How are you supposed to get to it? Well, it's present, but it's also unreachable. Now, as I as I take it, that would be an example of a kind of uh, paralogistic use of lack there. Um, with this syllogistic kind of lack, we would have something like deprivation in terms of the connections are possible get to analysis now needs to find out how the deprivation occurs what is causing um, the breakings what's causing the inability to connect what's happening with what's connecting and this leads into things like they're going to get into global um, persons versus partial objects how this is kind of created out of these um, uh, edible operations as they call it so for me the displacement here is talking instead about um, when, when we talk about the way that the uh, connective synthesis works, uh, it is non-specific and it is uh, not goal-oriented. The connections just happen all the time, constantly. Uh, sort of like a frenetic octopus, always trying to connect with everything, not really thinking through anything it's doing. However, with Oedipus, it basically tells you that your desire is not only uh, particular, which it very much becomes, it's you desire X. Uh, but it, it also makes it this global thing where we're no longer talking about uh, partial objects even. We're talking about you desiring a whole thing. And I mean, they get into that a little bit later, but the the first paralogism in the psychoanalytic process, they talk about uh, the quote, in reality, the problem has nothing to do with pre-edible stages that would still revolve around an edible axis, but rather with the existence and the nature of an anedible sexuality an anedipal heterosexuality and homosexuality, anedipal castration. Breaks flows of desiring production do not let themselves be projected onto a mythic locale. The signs of desire do not let themselves be extrapolated from a signifier. Transsexuality does not let any qualitative opposition between a local and nonspecific heterosexuality and local and nonspecific homosexuality arise. Uh, to them, to quote, everything in this revision, reversion the innocence of flowers instead of the guilt of conversion. But rather than ensuring or tending to ensure the reversion of the entire unconscious according to the anedipal form, uh, within the anedipal content of desiring production, analytic theory and practice never cease to promote the conversion of the unconscious to Oedipus form and content. It's, it's about saying that our desire is particular when it is not. By saying that our desire is very particular, which, it, which Oedipus does, and then immediately prohibiting it, we have this really interesting sort of case of, we not only have a uh, creation that is particular when it comes to anti-production, which anti-production is also non-particular, uh, but we also have the desire itself being goal-oriented, which is not the case. Yeah, you're taking, so like, I, I'm gonna be a little Aristotelian here for a moment, but you're taking the particulars and putting them in the general, right? So you're. You've got Oedipus that can explain all this stuff, and you're putting the particulars into the general. It's like taking a premise and putting it in your conclusion. 
we call that a begging the question fallacy, right? The premise and the yes. conclusion can't be the same thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're spot on about that. Um, let me see here. So in terms of that too, with the connections, I mean, I, I think you're getting at the heart of it because it, you're right, the connections, they don't have a larger goal, right? There's no grand telos. They're connecting um, as part of this process of desire, right? They're animated and therefore they're machinic and in that sense and structuring. But there, there's a vitalism there, which they get into in chapter three. So the first, what's happening in that first paralogism is the transcendent signifier of the phallus, right? So instead of talking about Correct. signifying chains and the body without organs, just um, distributing libidinal energy and thereby functionality. We're talking about everything as though it's taking its cue from the, the transcendental phallus, right? Yeah, and essentially, the when we start doing that and we go down that process, it it begins that process of contorting uh, through the paralogisms. It begins contorting what desire does, and it and it does some interesting things when it comes to signs, and when it comes to the representational process and how we sort of see the signs across the BWO because. As soon as we have that repressing representation, we'll get into it. I think they get more into that in the, uh, I want to say the second and third. But the 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 way that representation works inside of these is where it starts getting, I think, really interesting as a way that we can see not just in Oedipus, but also in a lot of what I would call uh, fundamental errors about the assumption of human desire that we can start breaking things down. It's where I'm really interested in this process. So... Um, I'll get back to that, but that, that, again, to to just restate that we're here, we're talking about the breakdown of the connective process, that first synthesis, where we say, instead of it's just connecting all the time, instead, we, we've changed it to say, no, it desires are particular and goal oriented, which completely fucks us up. Yeah. And so I'll give, if I may, I'll, I'll read a couple of things out just to help position this. So in terms of Oedipus. Um, this is from the interpretation of dreams. So this is where Freud first introduces the concept. Uh, and I, this is one of the later editions. It's at least the third edition in English. But anyways, um, let me see here. So this discovery, meaning Oedipus, so he's talking about, well, okay, I'll read you, I'll read it then. In my experience, which is already extensive, the chief part in the mental lives of all children who later become psychoneurotics is played by their parents. Being in love with the one parent and hating the other are among the essential constituents of the stock of physical impulses, which is formed at that time and which is of such importance in determining the symptoms of the later neurosis. So right, this is where you have a problem with the id um, and the ego relationship. It is not my belief, however, that psychoneurotes differ sharply in this respect from other human beings who remain normal. That they are able, that is, to create something absolutely new and peculiar to themselves. It is far more probable, and this is confirmed by occasional observations on normal children, it is far more probable that they are only distinguished by exhibiting on a magnified scale feelings of love and hatred to their parents, which occur less obviously and less intensely in the midst of most children. This discovery is confirmed by a legend that has come down to us from classical antiquity, a legend whose profound and universal power to move can only be understood if the hypothesis I have put forward in regard to the psychology of children 
has an equally universal validity, which I have, what I have in mind is the legend of King Oedipus and Sophocles' drama, which bears his name. That's two sits, two sits through. I'm not going to go too much further into this because it's a lot to read, but you can see what he's kind of doing here, right? He's taking two universals and kind of, con again, he's kind of putting the, the general in the universal here. Uh, but you can see what interests him. He's talking about this problem that happens with children, right, in terms of the their relationship with the parents. And you get the Oedipal relationship of hating the father and wanting the mother, right? And this for him, as I read Freud, affects the unconscious. So it's affecting the relationship of the id, the ego, and the superego, which is where you're going to get the, the tertiary being where you're going to get the incest taboo particularly. But this is kind of the move they're making in terms of representation, right? It already appears, in, at least as I read it, that the Oedipus complex isn't actually part of the unconscious in that direct part. It's not part of those three which we've seen Deleuze and Guattari completely um, sort of rework in a sense, but it's affecting them. But you can see how there is something of a metaphysics to be discovered here, which is how they're going to, uh, Deleuze and Guattari are going to make this critique. Well, and the, the critique sort of blows out, and I really like how Holland puts it. Um, the, pro the prohibition of incest, uh, quote, what really gets repressed by the prohibition is thus different from the false image of it produced by the prohibition. Uh, just uh, when we say the prohibition of incest, it, it's implicit in that moment that you learn, as they complain about, that you learn in that moment both the prohibition exists, which means you can't do it, the law, but also that you wanted this thing. You, you learn this at the same time. So... To continue, uh, desire because of this uh, gets displaced onto an erroneous signified belonging to the prohibitive system of representation rather than desire itself. It's basically saying that there's no way to trace back uh, the, the sort of the cause of desire in the same way that the incest prohibition seems to. And Deleuze and Guattari's entire critique here is, quote, uh, far from being repressed by the incest prohibition, Oedipal desire is in fact produced by it and then gets repressed by it only after the fact. Uh, the Oedipus complex, Deleuze and Guattari insist, is, quote, a falsified apparent image that is meant to trap desire. It's, it's a really a unique way to look at it because again when we're talking about desire being a thing that is naturally created inside of the connections blind signless simple connections that are trying to work all the time uh this idea of desire having a thing that is very particular uh at all is ridiculous and instead saying that well desire is actually placed on this or in relation to these signs which desire doesn't do uh is displacing it onto specifically a repressive system of signs because again oedipus by its own nature is a prohibition and a demand at kind of in one mm -hmm. uh, and that's the that's really the the core cause of this by having the prohibition we're for, we're tricking people and tricking desire and trapping it inside of this sort of self uh, replicating uh, triangle a really interesting. I do. I do recommend uh, Holland's critique on it. It's. I found it really uh, fascinating as he expands on the entire uh, background of the entire thing through Lacan and Freud as well. Yeah, we should clarify here too. Deleuze and Guattari don't say there's no such thing as Oedipus, right? Correct. But this use of it is a huge problem, right? Because 
especially with the third synthesis, right? It is possible to simulate Oedipus, right, to have an Oedipal subjectivity, but not in this sense necessarily, and more so only with the, um, the recognition that there are countless other simulations possible, and that, as I think even Freud has uh, admits in the interpretation of dreams, right, you're putting a name of history upon um, an, an affectivity, right? So, like, he could, the, the losing water compared to this to, like, the, the use of physics, right? Physics will say, oh, yeah, you've got um, such and such effect, right? So they might say you've got, like, a, I don't know, the Dunning-Kruger effect. You're not actually doing Dunning-Kruger, right? That's not what they mean. So Deleuze and Guadalupe will say it's like this with the Iliogabalus or Joan of Arc. You have a Joan of Arc effect using the historical names, but that doesn't mean you're actually Joan of Arc any more than that would mean you're actually Oedipus, right? No, and, and the other thing this uh, does, and again, their entire sort of system of semiotics at this point, uh, it, it gives us a chance instead of, uh, and I'm not someone who dislikes the con at all, I really enjoy his work, but uh, what it does is it, it says that we can actually take a look at the syntheses and we can actually talk about what an illegitimate and legitimate use is based on where the belief of the desire and the sign is created. And that gives us actually a really interesting way to sort of break down what an anisland, uh, analysand, or a patient, or a person, or a subject uh, actually desires and wants. and. Uh, critique it and talk through it in 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 the place where it's at, which is I think really fascinating. So I I think it's interesting, uh, but um, that's that's it, it's it's a lot. That is the first paralogism of displacement. Uh, please uh, questions. Displacement is not the fourth. Is displacement the fourth? I think it's the fourth, but I I thought deprivation was the first, but. I could be mistaken there. Yeah, Paul would have to help me out with, uh, help us out with extrapolation. I'm not sure uh, what you mean there. Holland has it as the first. Oh, okay, Paul. I see where you're talking about this. You, yep, this use rested upon a paralogism of extrapolation that, in fact, constituted Oedipus's formal cause, and extrapolations whose illegitimate nature weighed on the whole operation, the extraction of a transcendent complete object from the signifying chain, which served as the spot signifier. Um, okay. So yeah, I won't keep reading, but yeah, I see what you're getting at. Uh, I had a question about, I understand the last part you're talking about kind of how, when you say to, you know, don't, don't do this thing, like you're creating the, the desire in, in a way. Um, but how does that connect to the earlier part you were talking about? when you're describing how your lips are on the cup and, you know, drinking the water and how those parts are kind of separated. Like how does so, that connect to the last part that you were talking about? Yeah. So, so how desire is, uh, we'll say how desire is created and what desire wants, uh, which is kind of silly to say, but I'm going to try to use that language. Uh, the, the first synthesis is essentially the moment that desire is created through connections. Now, desire is not a thing that has an object at the other side of it. Uh, desire doesn't sit there and go, I want to play a video game. I want to uh, do a thing. I want to eat some spicy dill uh, Chex Mix. I don't know why I have that on my desk. Um, 
it, desire doesn't really do that. Instead, it's a lot of little tiny desires and partial objects that are connecting. That's actually to, to Deleuze and Guattari how the desiring machines function. So it's much more broken down than Brooks wants spicy dill checks. Uh, instead, it's uh, all the different, and we're talking about a, a, a massive matrix of desiring machines that are firing off in, we'll say, my general area or region where I'm at that tends to lean in that direction or do things. Now, at the connections that happen and as they're made, they're kind of wild and going crazy. As over time, because when a, when a baby's going, it's trying to connect with everything, over time, the body without organs begins to be written on. And those sensations are recorded. As those sensations are recorded, the relations between things, the sensations that some things may give me, uh, I'm able to, because of, I'm created in the third step, look back and go, oh, this seems pleasurable, or these things are connected, or enjoy these things together. The, the sign that is created is still a partial object. There's a difference between a partial and a whole object. A whole object is Brooks. A partial object is uh, the tip of my finger. Uh, it's it's unrelated. A, a a baby connecting to his mother's breast doesn't think excellent. This is my mother's breast. It goes breast milk lips now. Like that's boom boom boom. Partial objects doesn't even know that it exists. Doesn't know mom exists. So the this is the way it kind of works uh, at a basic level. What Oedipus does by sort of inserting this object at the beginning and saying actually you have a whole object of desire and you also have a whole thing of uh, a whole law against it. Immediately you move to this place where you're no longer dealing with partial desires and partial objects, but instead a full object of desire and a full object also of repression, which uh, does some really interesting, terrible things. We'll get into a, a, a bit later, but it's, it's a thing that begins to break down how their semiotic and sign system sort of overall works and how our relations allow us to sort of uh, connect things uh, and and put things together. And it's that that becomes this sort of ongoing problem, uh, specifically in this paralogism, and we'll get more into that, but specifically in this, it's, it's about playing through what... Um, I suppose it would be something like... Um the mouth connecting the cup is not necessarily due to an oral fixation whose residuum or rather which is the residuum of something like an oedipus complex that's not necessarily what's happening yeah it's it's suddenly we have this image and it and it kind of traps desire because what we start doing is we start forcing the partial signs that are on the bwo to not and we'll get into this in a second but instead of just allowing the BWO's sort of odd relational ability to sort of connect signs, we'll say through free association, it's not really right, but that's kind of it. Instead, we start saying that, oh, well, actually what we desire is this full sign. And because we're doing that, after desire's actually been done, but we're doing it in retrospect and we're reassigning that, we're creating this really fucked up layer where essentially what we're doing is we're forcing actual desire to be fully repressed inside of social production. And so because it becomes oppressed and Oedipus kind of sits there, it, it traps it inside of this place, which means we can never actually get to the real partial connections or the real partial objects that are actually what is maybe damaging the person or hurting the person or things that we can understand about them because by nature, they've already sort of forced it into this image. Again, we have to talk about it's, it's the real difficult part here is uh, 
classically we were talking about the psyche existing and maybe uh, the superego, ego, and id being the components of your psyche, and it's a battle between these. And with Deleuze and Guattari, they're saying, no, actually, these desiring machines, it's not so much a battle. There's a lot of them going on. You exist only after the desire's already been not only kind of made, but like chosen to be acted upon. And it's a, it's a, you exist a little bit after the fact. And so by adding this sort of layer in retrospect, it, it represses those desiring machines. Does that make sense, Rose? Yeah, so what I'm hearing, or I guess what I'm understanding is that you're saying basically this Oedipal complex is interfering with the, I guess, natural function of all of these desiring machines. Yes, and because the desiring machines and their connections are essentially what produce small partial signs, uh, it, sensations, our, our recorded nature of sensations, and then we actually, uh, our subject that's created and our BWO, because of the way that those signs are organized, we see patterns and we connect them and we see the relationship between signs based on millions of these interactions. That's how we deal with the world and how we choose to do what we're going to do. Like that's the, the way that these signs are related, how we see them, how we talk about them, how we communicate with them, how the, uh, even the desiring machines continue to operate is based on, you know, the organization of these things on the, on the BWO. So all of this stuff is sort of, let's say the, the healthy process, what we're introducing is we're going back to the beginning step and we're saying, well, yeah, all of this is happening, but what we need to do is it needs to be the mom. And the BWO is like, I don't, I don't have a fucking mom here. Like mom's not an, a partial object. So suddenly what happens is we kind of displace. We have, that's where this, this term comes from in their phrasing is we essentially displace desire onto a full object from being where it is, which is in this really complex partial object sort of scenario. And that displacement uh, becomes really a betrayal of the uh, chance that we have in the as they would call the schizophrenic unconscious. Um, but then that, that also moves us into the, I think the second one. Uh, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to talk just on this one without moving forward. Um, Paul asks uh, a question about their semiotics. Are signs machines too? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Uh, not, not, not signs. I think signifiers could be considered to be one, but I'd have to, that's a larger conversation, I think. I'd have to have, but they, I don't think signs are. Signs are, to them, signs are the result of interactions by the desiring machines and the recording of the sensations on the BWO. So it's closer, their sign system, um, and I know Kent is in here, and I don't know if anyone else has read Yomslev, but it feels like uh, Yomslev has this concept around uh, uh, the way sounds sort of operate in language as extreme partial objects it feels like it's very much inspired by uh, that sort of thinking about things. So I'll, I'll link to some in the chat in a second. It might be better not to go too deep into semiotics here because to, to get into your question, we're going to have to talk about Saucerian and Heshmelvian semiotics in juxtaposition. And like, this is going to be a long conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of this is built on the backs of some really extraordinary thinkers and is obviously deeply inspired by them. But the short version is, I don't think in them, in their semiotic signs are machines. Uh, de desiring machines are powered by libidinal energy. Machines 
are powered by this and they can take the form of a lot of stuff, but desiring machines is basically the core foundation of any of their machine sort of setups. Uh, signs are the resultant sensations being recorded on the body without organs. And this would include also for social machines, the signs that are recorded on the socius, uh, for example. So it's, uh, it's a complex process and very meta psychoanalytic overall, but that's my understanding of it. We'll move on to the, the second uh, paralogism, uh, which is the paralogism of application, uh, the illegitimate use of the conjunctive synthesis. Um, disjunctive. Disjunctive synthesis. Oh, wait, it is? Mm-hmm. The sure. first one's the connective, yeah, connective, disjunctive, conjunctive, I believe it goes. I just call them... I use different terms, so I don't have to deal with that as much. But yeah, I go. I usually say consummating uh, consumptive for the third one. Uh, this is the second. So, so, okay. So, interesting. So, Holland has it written out as the illegitimate use of the conjunctive. Uh, that I believe that's the third, then. Is he talking about um, subjectivity, affects, and intensities there? Or is he talking about the recording process and, like, double binds? Uh, this is uh, this is it's about the recording process and the forced by 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 vocalization. Sounds a bit disjunctive. It does. Now let's well, well the so the paralogism of application and then we can have the debate. I'm going to try to explain it really simply. Uh, basically, what happens inside of the Oedipus complex is we we force everyone uh, who. Uh, sort of deals with it. A psychoanalyst will come to someone and say, well, excellent. So everything needs to basically be identified with mom or dad. You have to identify with your mother or father. Everyone does. Now, that process, that uh, that process of application, uh, the it, it changes the way, again, the desiring machines function, but their recording process especially, where basically everything suddenly has to be identified with mommy or daddy, um, and as they've said, Oedipus uh, definitely exists as a thing, but it's not at this level. Uh, for them, this is about the moment when uh, the signs that are recorded on the body without organs are by nature sort of polyvocal. They don't necessarily mean a thing. They're all partial objects. They can combine with other signs on the BWO to mean a great deal many things. There's actually an extraordinary near unlimited possibility there. What we do with Oedipus, though, is we basically say, well, everything is either one of two things, which turns the polyvocal nature of how the recording process can work to suddenly being biunivocal. And that means that it's one of two things. It becomes simple. It becomes uh, predetermined. It becomes set up. And that is the paralogism of application, as I understand it. Am I way off, Jack? Um, it's definitely the double bind, right? Yeah. So, so this is the exclusive dis or the the disjunctive synthesis. Some I have some material if we want to go deeper into it. the disjunctive synthesis is the either or or or, right? Now the paralogistic aspect happens here in the sense that a double bind occurs. And so they, they have a few ways of explaining this, right? But um, in this sense, it's an either or distinction, this or that, right? But this this or that 
with the double bind here has an important um, turn of the screw, and that is right this or that in relation to um, the transcendent signifier, right? So mommy or daddy, in either way, it's in this yoking. So there's no there's no potentiality for becoming here, right? It's about um, whether or not you're in this role, right? And in this sense, you know, subjectivity is not here because um, I'm broaching a little bit of third synthesis here, but even with functionality, right? You're dealing with the, uh, this metaphysics that's kind of sitting above what's happening. So it's not necessarily that there's a daddy, mommy, me thing happening, right, for desire, but with the, the paralogistic use, right, with that triangle, it's got to be locatable within the triangle, right? So it's either the father or the mother um, or what have you, right? I guess father, mother, or ma uh, me. And so with that triangulation comes the either or distinction. So this or that, right? Well, uh, please, if you had, we're not talking about the double bind, uh, please jump, jump in. Okay, he's typing. So he's we're, typing. we'll give him a second. <laughs> yeah, we'll give him a second. Okay, just to make sure. I, no, I, 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 so so my, my direct reading in paragraph uh, that I'm reading from is on page 110 of AO, uh, the Minnesota Press. Um, the, again, the, the nature of uh, polyvocal uh, signs on the BWO is this really amazing sort of indeterminate direction, uh, this crazy undifferentiated imaginary, as they call it. Um, but Oedipus sort of forces us to have this, as they call it, the double bind, uh, where on one side we have very exclusive restricted use where we've uh, naturally separated things. Again, the, the process of recording is one of differentiation. That's how it works. But as soon as we begin getting really exclusive and restrictive to it, uh, suddenly we've we've shaped this polyvocal thing into being something that is incredibly simplistic and it forces in Oedipus, it forces uh, everyone to identify either with mommy or daddy uh, and you don't really have any other options. And because of that, everything becomes mommy or daddy. And this is uh, the, the sort of breakdown of that sign system and the breakdown of your own. Uh, suddenly you have no choice but to sort of have Oedipus as part of that. Is that better, Paul? Because I think you're right. I think we're, we're trying to talk around the thing. Is uh, it, For me, I find uh, more interesting the paralogisms, the way that it affects the sign systems and as, as a thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm very fascinated by their semiotics. So I tend to go a little heavy there. Let me give you some Bakhtin to help place this. Because I think this is part of, I think there's at least an illusion here. So in Bakhtin's the problem of the poetics of the problem of Dostoevsky. In in um, Bakhtin's the, uh, the poetics of Dostoevsky, he talks about, I believe he calls it the polyphonous novel or the polyvocal novel. But what he's after in that is to understand Dostoevsky's use of the novel in such a way that the author maintains an intent. Right? It's still got it. The author still has a discourse, a, a, a semiotics but that Dostoevsky's characters take on that of their own. So this is kind of, you, you can probably see where I'm going with this in terms of desiring machines. A body without organs may be putting the desiring machines to work through the avatars of miraculation and repulsion, but there's still this polyvocality in the sense that the desiring machine should be able to have this articul um, 
this potential for their own enunciation, right? In this sense, you can contrast this with the double bind, right? Where it's either right inside of the author or the character. More so, it's either Oedipus or it's Oedipus in a sense, yeah? It's one or the other. It's got to be in the triangle to be more direct about it. Is that helpful, the Bakhtin? Yes, yeah. Uh, and I want to read a little bit uh, of what Holland writes on this because, I again, I really love his breakdown on this. If you haven't, it's worth reading. Um, yes, and then, uh, Paul, you can jump in. Um, the For him, the really, really big deal here is that this paralogism basically, uh, as he says, uh, the mistake made by psychoanalysis in this connection is to interpret these fully social determinations of subjectivity, uh, mother, father, nuclear family, etc., cetera, uh, and all these other things, racial, political, religious, in terms of the Oedipus complex, when the opposite is the case. Familial segregation is not only historically derivative of other segregative forms, but these latter have never ceased to operate in modern public spheres, and they effectively overdetermine the reproduction of subjectivity. So, uh, to say short, uh, the Oedipus complex claims that the problems and the, the ways that people are dealing with things on a social level ultimately come from the family and the way that they deal with the family. When their argument is no, it's actually that these things are incredibly complex and that familial segregation is actually derivative of all of these other things. And this is the sort of way that it's been flipped, that things come from the family. No, no, no. Things, the family comes from other things. So uh, any any questions left on uh, this before we move on to the next paralogism, the third. We did have a question about the global and the partial. Just to get into that, um, so they write, they do Deleuze and Guattari. The opposition here is between two uses of the connective synthesis, the global and a specific use, and the partial and non-specific use. In the first, desire at the same time receives a fixed object and ego specified according to a, a given sets and complete objects defined as global persons, right? So you want this because you are this, and you kind of see where this is going. There's um, there's kind of an enclosure happening, a fit subject, and this notion of the ego, which um, they have criticisms of later on. We'll talk about like in the third synthesis where the ego is like this, for them is this thing moving through the partial objects as it, sort of the, during the affectivity and the celibate machines um, process. They continue, in reality, global persons, even the very form of persons, do not exist prior to the prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them, any more than they exist prior to the triangulation into which they enter. Desire receives its first complete objects and is forbidden them at one and the same time. So right, again, you've got this. It's here, but it's absent problem. Uh, so to Paul's earlier point, and I'm fascinated by this, uh, Holland has these in a different order than Deleuze and Guattari, and it is not an error on his part, so I need to figure out why. I didn't even notice that before. Because um, I just did what Deleuze and Guattari talk about as a third. Oh, God, my notes are all fucked up. Um, interesting. So... The third, uh, so Paul asks, uh, isn't the double bind between successful Oedipalization and turning your back on Oedipus, then being castrated and in the end being Oedipalized regardless? Uh, so, so yes, that is how uh, they they describe it and how they talk about it. Uh, 
the the underlying parts that they also discuss is when we start talking about the the double bind as it operates and how it works is it is still imposing this sort of uh at, at another level rather than just saying oh you're gonna pick mommy or daddy you have to submit it's it's forcing people to pick uh the full subjects between them uh and the choice becomes basically uh becoming uh edipalized having symbolic re resolution where you have admitted your imaginary fixation on your mother and you are going to find a replacement of her uh, by finding a good wife. And then you yourself are going to become a father in order to sort of complete that cycle and probably out your own fucking kid. Or the option is to actually be remain trapped inside of the familial and be submissive to the father uh, forever. They see these as kind of the two options. The, the thing is, this is still... Uh, part of that same thing that they were talking about, the paralogism of application. And I think this is why Holland has them uh, reversed, because what this does also is it still forces people into binary symbology because of your relation to only a handful of signs essentially becomes determinate of your entire psyche. How I relate to my father and mother is my triangulation in the world, which is two points. Now, they're whole objects, so that's at least something. But on the BWO, I don't get triangulated with two points. Instead, the subject that is created is nomadic, wandering, relational, and can connect to untold numbers of signs inside of their region that they're wandering. So it's, it's double bind operates in both ways in the sense that it's either or, 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 or. And the double bind as part of that is the force sort of side where we're like, no, in order to do this, you have you're either going to come in and you're going to allow yourself to become fully subjectified under this, or you're going to be stuck here forever. And so the double bind is the threat, but the threat itself actually has a deeper semiotic meaning is what they're saying. And it's interesting. So Holland uh, has this and the previous reversed. And I think I understand why the double bind has an implication on the subject, which isn't created quite yet. So it's interesting. The paralogism of application he has actually has, the second one, which is, no, don't worry about it, Paul. This is, I'm, I'm trying to understand most of this myself, and this is one of the harder things. So don't, don't be sorry. This is me trying to explain things and me, me asking questions too. Um, Would it help if they actually give a summary of these three paralogisms on pages 110 to 111, I believe? Would it help if I read that? Um, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, that's like three pages. It's like two paragraphs. All right. Thus, we have already seen how the imminent criteria of desiring production permitted a definition of legitimate uses of syntheses, uses completely distinct from Oedipal uses. And in relation to this desiring production, the Oedipal illegitimate uses seem to us to be multiform, but always to revolve around the same error and to envelop theoretical and practical paralogisms. In the first place, a partial and nonspecific use of the connective synthesis was found to be in opposition to the Oedipal use, itself global and specific, itself being Oedipus here. This global specific use was found to have two aspects, parental and conjugal, to which the triangular form of Oedipus and the reproduction of this form corresponded. This use rested upon a paralogism of extrapolation that in fact constituted Oedipus's formal cause an extrapolation whose illegitimate nature weighed on the whole operation, the extraction of a transcendent, complete object from the signifying chain. So this is Brooks' point about the complete versus partial object here. 
which served as a despotic signifier on which the entire chain thereafter seemed to depend, assigning an element of lack to each position of desire, fusing desire to a law and engendering the illusion that this loosened up and freed the elements of the chain. In the second place, an inclusive or non-restrictive use of disjunctive synthesis is in opposition to their Oedipal exclusive restrictive use. This restrictive use in its turn has two poles, imaginary and symbolic. Since the only choice it permits is between the exclusive symbolic differentiations and the undifferentiated imaginary, correctively determined by Oedipus. This use demonstrates this time how Oedipus proceeds. It demonstrates Oedipus's method, a paralogism of the double bind, the double impasse. Or, in line with the suggestion made by Henry Gobard, would it be better to translate this as a double hold, like a full Nelson hold in wrestling, so as to better describe the treatment forced on the unconscious when it is bound at both ends, leaving it no other choice than to respond to Oedipus, to cry Oedipus in sickness as in health, in its crises as in their outcome, in its resolution as in its problem. In any case, the double bind is not the schizophrenic process. On the contrary, the double bind is Oedipus insofar as it arrests the motion of the process or forces it to spin around in the void. In the third place, a nomadic and polyvocal use of conjunctive syntheses is opposed to the segregative and bionivocal use made of them. And this is where we're heading now. There again, this bionivocal use, illegitimate from the point of view of the unconscious itself, has what appears to be two moments. First, a moment that is racist, nationalistic, religious, etc., and that by means of a segregation constitutes an aggregate of departure that is always presupposed by Oedipus, even if in a totally implicit fashion. Next, a familial moment that constitutes the aggregate of destination by means of an application. Once the third paralogism, the paralogism of application, which fixes the precondition for Oedipus by establishing a set of bionivocal relations between the determinations of the social field and the familial determinations, thereby making possible and inevitable the reduction of libidinal investments to the eternal daddy-mommy. We still have not exhausted all the paralogisms that lead the practice of the cure in the direction of a frenzied Oedipolation, a betrayal of desire, the unconscious closeted in a day nursery, a narcissistic machine for arrogant and mouthy little egos, a perpetual absorption of capitalist surplus value, flows of words against flows of money, the interminable story, psychoanalysis. The three errors, the three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error and idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious and it is futile to interpret these notions in terms of the combinative apparatus, lying combinator, to give a shot at French, that makes a lack an empty position and no longer a deprivation, but turns the law into a rule of game and no longer a commandment, and the signifier into a distributor and no longer a meaning. For these notions cannot be prevented from dragging their theological cortege behind insufficiency of being guilt, and signification. Structural interpretation challenges all beliefs. I'll close here.
rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only functions, defines the prohibitions and the transgressions as structural operations. It's the, the thing that gets really fascinating as these go forward, and it's what Holland really gets into as they talk about this is when they start when they start forcing you into binaural vocalization, which is something that happens with these signs after the fact, but we've sort of placed them in, it changes in general the way that we sort of handle a lot of what they would call our molecular uh, desiring machines, molecular uh, sort of objects. So uh, the, the one I like that he talks about, even if on what Deleuze and Guattari called the molar level, uh, which is sort of things at large, uh, there may still be recognizable sexual identities. Clearly, there's more than two. On the molecular level, sexual identity is comprised of a multiplicity of internal features that are not reducible to reproductive organs alone. This may include body hair, bone, muscle mass, breast size, propensity to aggression or even passivity, to emotional or rational, and so forth. Here, too, there are no longer just two sexual identities, but rather diverse ways of being a man, which go far beyond just straight or gay. A variety of ways of being a lesbian, say, which go far beyond being butch or femme. The result, the losing Guattari insist, is that there is not one or even two, but in sexes. There is no such thing as sexual identity, no such thing as heterosexuality, homosexuality, or bisexuality, except as gross molar approximations. Only multiplicity, or what they call transsexuality. It is never really a question of being a man or a woman, straight or gay or so, but of affirming a multiplicity of innumerable differences. By contrast, the nuclear family, Oedipalization, largely because as the principal reproductive institution under capitalism is segregated from society at large, makes systematic illegitimate use of the disjunctive syntheses to impose a restrictive set of ultimately untenable binary options. You are either man or woman, father, mother, prohibitor or prohibited, child, parent, subjected to obeying the law or responsible for wielding it. One either resolves the Oedipal crisis or fixates on it either blithely passing it on to one's children or endlessly repeating it on one's own. And I think that's the, to me, that's the a great sort of way to describe how the double bind ends up functioning. Because when we start making everything about mommy, daddy, my mom is a, a straight cis woman. That's the way it works. My dad's a straight cis man. If I have everything that has to be related to them, and that is my identity of what a man is and a woman is, and this is what Oedipal, this is what the Oedipal complex teaches me and what Oedipalization forces into me, suddenly all of those little bits of myself uh, that would be all the pieces of me becoming man or me becoming straight or becoming gay at any given point, uh, it's, it's not so much about those pieces anymore. Instead, it's prescriptive. And suddenly I have the choice of either or this or this or, 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 rather than just seeing where I'm at and seeing how the desiring machines are functioning and the signs that they generate. It's a really fantastic uh, breakdown of that. Oh, is my mic on? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, I um, switched devices. I was going to type this in, but I'll just ask it. Well, and um, I'm sure most of us concluded or uh, got to the same conclusion where you know, it's not just the nuclear family, but then the inst the um, extensionality um, across socio 
histories where, in fact, uh, you know, it's been uh, adopted by the much larger institution or the or the socius, right? So this double bind is actually constantly signaling um, from the uh, the machine that provides symbolic law uh, and uh, and also provides it through um, constantly hooking in to people's desires. So there's a oedipalization of the the machine that is the uh, what Lacan would refer to as the big other. And I think Deleuze and Guattari's critique would be that uh, it's not so much that the people's desires feed into the machine, but that the machine tells people what their desires ought to be or what their desires are. And by doing so in a very specific uh, sort of bi-univocal way, which is the vast majority of the times, Adipole aside, uh, but let's take, say, race as an example, because Misha asks, how do you avoid that from being, I don't see color? How do you, how do you deal with race and these other things? And uh, the answer is, I, I, I believe that um, you, you do see color. Uh, everyone does. It, the, the, the sensation of uh, I, my eye sees skin color is a thing that is a desiring machine and a connection and the signs created off of that. And there's a million things that go along with that from seeing the clothes someone's wearing to smelling the air to uh, how I'm walking to tasting you know, the, the moisture on the air or the food I'm eating. All of these things become sort of signs and the relationships between them are incredibly complicated. When I start doing either or though, which is what Oedipus does or what sort of grand scale uh, paralogisms basically force upon us, suddenly my differences become prescriptive. Suddenly when I say that someone's black, I mean, they're black, you know, they're, they're black people, you know, black people. Uh, and that, that changes the description of what I'm saying. That uh, Suddenly it's not uh, me talking about the desiring machine, it's me being prescriptive of what it means to be black or to be straight or to be gay. And that those things are whole objects rather than just saying, uh, a black skin does this or a gay man, a man who's gay does this and he's doing a million different things. He's a, a subject sort of transient on his body without organs. Instead, I'm saying he is X and X does X and I'm prescriptive about what that means. So it's a really, uh, again, when we say uh, that society or the big other is looking down at us and says, I expect you to be a man, uh, I'm, you're Oedipalized, the analysand and Freud says, these things are basically forcing us to take the signs as we have recorded them all our lives on our body without organs and forcing us to look at them through a very particular lens of what a man means and throwing out all the desiring machines and the connections there that aren't really part of that. And that's the part that gets really awful. Basically, that's, that's where you start getting really fucked up because the binary vocalization of objects, which is which is really the next one, the, the paralogism of extrapolation, I think is, I'm, I'm diving into at this point, um, which is the sort of, uh, it's, it's the illegitimate use of the connective syntheses. When we take uh, partial object connections, which is what the desire machines do, again, you don't desire, uh, I don't desire to have sex with famous hot girl. Uh, that's not really how it works. There's there's a million little desiring machines and signs that are firing off. And as I'm wandering through there and they're going, uh, that's the way it works. But instead, the extrapolation is when we take, uh, we mistake partial objects for whole objects. 
is how I understand uh, sort of that last step. Uh, the thing that Kent sent out puts it great. Uh, psychoanalysis converts a detachable part object into a detached complete object that subjects lack, the phallus, lack, whatever it may be. Uh, the, the goal of a thing to be when we say an object uh, or subject desires an object whenever it is, this doesn't happen. People don't desire a thing. Desiring machines wish for connections and they do it in extremely complex ways. We are extrapolating what that desire means and we're laying intentionality on desiring machines that don't exist, is, is how I understand it. Sorry for the rant for a second. The flows of desire ultimately are impersonal. And by creating, giving them personality, saying that they have desires of an object or assigning them to a subject is, is the problem with extrapolation. It's doing a disservice to how desire is created and how we actually interact and grow and, and create our, our semiotics inside of this world. Please, Jack, talk. Oh, geez. You know, this is like one of the most controversial points about Deleuze and Guadagri, right? <laughs> um, let me first say, I, I don't... To the interpretations of Deleuze and Guadagri as suggesting something of... Um, I'm not saying this is what you mean, Michelle. I'm only saying responding to this um, generally, not not at you particularly. I don't think Deleuze and Guadagher is saying we don't see race. I don't think they're denying that any more than they deny sexuality, gender, and um, anything else that goes into something like culture. But their point, in a sense, and you can see this with even our engagement with consciousness, right? Consciousness doesn't precede the unconscious. Um, subjectivity doesn't precede its production. You follow me here? The, the general doesn't happen as though it hasn't happened, right? It's not as though it lacks an event of its production. This is very important. The category doesn't precede anything here. And to make it proceed can get us into some trouble, quite a bit of trouble, especially with something like race or gender. Um, so I wrote this a little bit, but first let me say I prefer ethnicity to race, but I don't think that's a, a big thing for our discussion. So if I use ethnicity, it's just my preference of the term. Deleuze and Guadagri's point is that ethnicity does not precede production, nor that it exists transcendent to the assemblage. So it's not as though ethnicity exists outside of production. It's not as though it exists outside of assemblages. Again, we're talking about territorialities and codes, desiring production and zones upon the body of the organs, or inscription, or production, and where um, intensification, consumption, whichever you like there, are taking place. So race is produced in this manner, and it's something that subjects consume. Subjects here being not simply the global person, right? Not simply a representative of a culture, but partial objects more directly. So we can talk about the molarity of people uh, in a culture, but we have to understand that there are molecular processes, right? that they come together in this sense and that you can't have the molar without the molecular, right? And this is never to say, as I always point out, that one is the new good and one is the new evil. This is to say that they are reciprocally determinative, to use a technical term. So hopefully you're still with me here. Deleuze and Guattari, uh, to continue, ethnicities are produced and subjectivities as well as intensities are part of territories and codes. So this isn't like a culture exists as something uncreated, nor as unchanging, nor as monolithic within that group. The universal should not be taken for particulars here. 
Now, this does not mean we have no ethnicity. This is to say we have no ethnodeterminism in the same way we don't have sexual, gender, or biological determinism. So race isn't simply color in your example of I don't see color. Then I laugh about Brooks saying I don't desire to have sex with famous hacker. <laughs> uh, races are not immutable here. Races and ethnicities do not represent, but are themselves produced, inscribed, and consumed. That made me laugh, Brooks. I love that. Uh, famous hot girl. You choose. You choose who Brooks Brown has sex with, but um, we'll get to that later on. So what I'm driving at here is to say that for them in the same way as like you're not always heterosexual, you're not always bisexual. These are effects and subjectivities that are producing you as such, right? In the same way we would say for uh, race that you're produced as something like black, as something like white. This is this down where they talk about transraciality in the same way as they're talking about transsexuality, not in the way we normally use the term transsexual, but to talk about something that has the either or or potential. And they go time and time back to Judge Schraber, who in moving from zone to zone, Judge Schraber becomes Aryan, Judge Schraber becomes Mongol, Judge Schraber becomes Black, Judge Schraber becomes Jewish. All these different becomings are open to him as he traverses the assemblages, as he's produced within them. Um, so hopefully that begins an answer for you. I know this, like I said, this is a very, I think a lot of controversy comes here. And I think it's in part because in my view, this is a difficult thing to engage with, especially in 2021. But that would be my answer to how Deleuze and Guadri, um, I don't think can be justifiably interpreted as saying, I don't see color. I have a question regarding terms. So what would Deleuze and Goddard, what term would they use when talking about like a person's hair color or eye color or skin color? Like what term do they, do they give to those things? So you're talking about identification and identities, right? Or, or do you mean literally uh, someone has black frizzy hair or red curly hair uh, as no. a thing. I mean, as in like, so we're talking about desiring machines and we're talking about all these little parts that we can break down and they're defining all these little parts. So this particular part of a person's existence, right? What, what, what word do they give it when they're talking about it, when they're discussing these things? Okay, so if I follow the main point for them is that the identification does not, does not necessarily precede the production. Now, we do have recordings in that which play into production. There's no doubt about that. Um, but the point is, too, that with codification, with intensities, we don't want to act as though there's a monolithic um, or like a universal identity that represents global persons. So one example I like this... We can talk, you know, talk about its limits and that, but I think here of like, um, of Ollie G, right? And the joke that it, is he, you know, is he putting on, um, so I think he talks about this joke where it's supposed to be like, he's a, is, you know, the question is, is he black, right? Because he's doing certain things that are coded as that. Now, this gets into some controversy, of course, but I think the point they're making is that 
because of the, the codification and the intensities, this kind of thing is possible, right? I would also, I think it may help to talk about one of the works that definitely inspired them is uh, Melanie Klein, uh, another psychoanalyst, theorist, uh, wonderful writer uh, who did work on pre-Oedipal relations, obviously post-Freud. Um, the the way that uh, she she talked about essentially the infant's growth is an infant first deals with the world as part objects. And this is obviously where they have this, this thinking where an infant comes into the world, it doesn't go, oh, cool, that's my mom. I need, I need breast milk, here's how I get it. It has no clue about how these things work or anything that does. It just has uh, drives, according to Melanie Klein, and it's an infant is basically a mess of drives trying to connect to partial objects. Uh, the infant, to quote, the infant may, for instance, experience a good breast, one that gives, and a bad breast, which withdraws in alternating modes of attraction and repulsion without combining the two versions into a whole object as a breast or assigning them to a global person, mom. Uh, this is kind of how she saw the infant working out. Obviously, she called it pre-Oedipal and how that kind of uh, works is it moves at some point where the... Uh, subject of the infant begins to be uh, created and sort of becomes unified as a global person uh, and becomes Oedipalized. Deleuze and Guattari essentially are responding to this and saying, well, why, why do we assume this ever stops? Why do we assume that this, this sort of what you would call a pre-Oedipal stage, which is this free connection of partial objects to desiring machines, uh, which would be, I see red hair, I see black hair, I see like I, not not I subject, not letter I, my I, I see, poof. And the, the sensation of that essentially gets recorded onto my BWO as a sign. And this happens a lot, a ton. And it happens all the time with a bunch of stuff we see and feel and taste and smell and experience. And as that happens out of this emerges a subject that retroactively believes this is them. So their argument would be, essentially that uh, because all of these things are partial signs, where we negotiate ourselves or how we negotiate the relationship between things is not through a predicated set of semiotics where uh, people are straight or gay or a woman is black or lesbian or a man is masculine or a dude or uh, gay. It's not that. That's not really how it works. Instead, it's you have a lot of signs and you're kind of becoming any of these different things at any given time based on where you are in relation to those, based on my experience of those. Uh, it's a really interesting way to talk about how semiotics functions and how we see things. Uh, for Oedipus, and not just Oedipus, but any sort of predictive assumption of what a global person would be or the demand of someone be a whole, whole individual or that I deal with whole things, is it does away with what uh, you could say are the uh, beautiful gaps or the, the the nuances of what a person's existence really is about. Uh, any given subject may like, uh, you know, flowers and cooking and uh, also going to the gun range and uh, also playing violent video games. Uh, those four things don't really have a triangulation on being masculine or not together. Instead, they comprise a complex person, and there's millions of these that complex that comprise a person. But if I say that your intention is you need to be masculine, it is the trope of the father who finds out his son wants to be in ballet and gets furious because there's no son of mine that way. It's 
that same mentality. And that's Oedipalization does that to us. Okay, uh, so I think the answer to my question was, because my question is just about vocabulary. So it sounds like you're saying, like, the someone's hair or eye color, they would define that as a sign. Yes. Well, so um, this is this is a larger uh, convo, but I think for for let's talk about for the subject and for uh, that thing. Yes, I think it would be a sign on the BWO that has relations to other signs. Um, I think socially, the social machines that we live in and the socialists would have other rules about what different hair color means and the implications of race and how all of these things work operates very similarly. But we're talking about in large on a molar massive sort of scale of the same kind of thing. So it's a larger discussion there, but it's a really interesting specific thing where it's my my interaction is a semiotic sign sign level interaction as it's recorded and my relationship and how i see that sign mixing with all the others is almost wholly determinate based on the coordinates of it on the bwo and where i see myself and other things in it um it's a a, a great recent example for uh, that comes to mind is uh, animal crossing introduced uh what are commonly considered to be uh, 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 black female hairstyles and uh, white and Japanese people are putting them on their Animal Crossing characters without it being black characters. And the sign itself is 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 what it is. It's just a haircut. I mean, it's just a hairstyle. It's a style of hair specifically. But there are larger predictive determinations that we make from that that it, as a whole object. It is not a whole object. And so socially it's different, but the specific thing it is is a sign. In their in their semiotics, as I understand it. Uh, okay, yeah. So, because yeah, because it's two different. Basically, what I'm it's two different conversations between just the sign existing in the world and all the things that we heap onto the sign when we see it. That yes, and there's. It's just those are two separate things. Yeah, the the sign itself exists in relation to all the other signs on our BWO or any BWO. Uh, Social repression is when we start actually saying that these signs have specific uh, intended meaning and we're prescriptive about it. And this is the, the paralogism of extrapolation because essentially what we're doing is we're forcing the bi-univocalization bi of objects, forcing global objects, forcing global individuals. The, the, the chain shifts from it being something that is a singular part that can be in relation to a lot to being a part of a specific thing, which is a very nuanced but very specific way that that change happens. To play off this a little bit more, with things like uh, traits, what matters for Deleuze and Guattari isn't that there are traits or that traits have an essence, right? What matters is their function. How they, what they perform, what the what the desired machines are doing in the, the process of production, that's like indispensable for them because it's right. You can do the taxonomy of things, but for Deleuze and Guattari, what's more important is how these things function in relation to each other. To make a a, a surmising point, um, and this is important because when we talk about like things like sexuality and, and ethnicity in this sense. I think sometimes there's a tendency to read Deleuze and Guadri and other post-structuralists as saying, yeah, none of this stuff even exists, or it's not real. That's not what they're after. 
They're not saying ethnicity is not real simply because ethnicity is created. In fact, this is a point about even the death of God here, right? Without God, does this stuff really not exist? For Deleuze and Guadri, and even for myself, the answer is that was never the case in the first place, right? And things didn't have to be simply because of the capital G God in that sense. Um, so to give a surmising point, for Deleuze and Guadri, right, a trick to keep in mind as you're going through this book and their work, I think, is that the importance of the role of differences. And for them, sexuality, ethnicity, uh, culture, these are all productions of differences. It doesn't make them less real. In fact, it's important because they're looking at differences as constitutive here and in their functionalities. So it doesn't mean the stuff doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's uh, BS because it's produced. It actually means quite the opposite. Very much. Well, it's it's um, it's it's Nietzsche, it's it, Nietzsche. However, you want to pronounce it. it it's the uh, the way that Nietzsche discussed. Basically, we we exist in any given time uh, through a series of competing drives, and it's a matter of whichever one's dominant is the master of the psyche and all that stuff. And it's that kind of mentality where we're talking about uh, to quote: far from being pre-edible and childish, partial objects for schizoanalysis register competing claims made by disparate drives to process experience according to divergent criteria of value or what Nietzsche would call differing perspectives. Uh, the, the way of, of seeing things there is really fascinating. I, I, again, it's uh, the ultimate thing to get back to is that the flows of desire, the connections are ultimately impersonal and partial. And the extrapolation is when we start giving them full global person status. I don't want to become categorical. I'm just giving a, a side example to help people understand, Jack. That wasn't at you. That was at me, sure. Yeah. See, I don't always disagree with your books. It, it's okay. I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. Well, if, if there's still time for us to go in the parking lot, if we don't get the, the pizzas we've ordered, you and I can take this out in the parking lot and we'll, we'll duke it out. Yes. Um, I do want to get uh, to the final uh, paralogism, which is, I think... Um, I mean, it's the one we're going to end up spending most time on because, again, I, I didn't write notes on this. I read a bunch on it, and I just didn't want to write anything because this is more of a discussion. The The final paralogism is what they call the paralogism of the afterword. Um, the, essentially, um, what this is about is it's like, okay, uh, it takes uh, the social repression, which uh, Oedipus would essentially be social repression. It's a social uh apparatus that sort of creates oppression um, and it uh, puts it inside of psychic repression when in reality it's the other way around um, that psychic repression ultimately leads to social repression we have seen now how a confusion arose between the two meanings of process process as the metaphysical production of the de demonical Nathan nature and processes social production of desiring machines within history Neither social relations nor metaphysical relations constitute an afterward or on. The role of such relations must be recognized in all psychopathological processes, and their importance will be all the greater when we are dealing with psychotic syndromes that would appear to be most animal-like and most desocialized. The discussion here is that all of these things happen as they've discussed so far. And the intention by the way 
Oedipus is spoken of and discussed from Lacan to Klein to Freud uh, is that uh, social repression uh, uh, is not necessarily where it comes from. What's actually happening is the psychic repression, the Oedipal complex that you personally have, your own repression that is happening, your own things, your own problems, are the ones that are exploding out into society when in reality, because of the hyper-complex nature of our relationships that are on the body without organs are incredibly complex social structures, uh, the history things, the determinant factors that have come before us, things that feed in, the reality is that uh, social repression actually is what leads to psychic repression. Uh, it's a, it seems like a, a obvious given to me, and I don't know why, and I would love anyone to talk about uh, if they don't understand this, but that's ultimately what they're talking about here, that uh, social oppression is led from instead of actually the lead. So, uh, Rose, um, the, the question Rose is asking, I think we'll move back because we haven't moved on to the afterward yet. Um, when we talk about semiotics and signs, it's a very specific language itself about how uh, we communicate, how language is built, how we experience what we see, how we process the world, how symbology works. Signs as a thing uh, is essentially a, um, I don't wanna say meaningless partial object, but I think that's probably the safest way to say it. And everything is composed of signs. And anyone can feel free to shit on me for saying that, but everything is composed of just an insanely large number of signs that have their own semi-meaningless partial object. Uh, when we assign meaning to them and the semiotics comes out of that, we've, we've symbolized something. It's, that, that changes. It's suddenly we've uh, given meaning to a thing. But the partial objects of signs, which would be traits, skin color, uh, all of those things that are in themselves uh, utterly meaningless and are assigned meaning in a later step, it's tough right now because we're all having like this conversation. Um, okay. So traits are, the easy way to say it is traits exist through differential relationships. They exist through processes of differentiations. They're not necessarily edipalized. They're not necessarily a problem. Um, but we should recognize that they're produced, that they're distributed, and that they're consumed and consummated, right, to use the three syntheses here. Um, so traits are not inherent, they're produced in the sense. So we would say physical traits would include, a physical trait would have um, signs and semiotic potential. And, and a lot of this, when, when they talk about it specifically, um, and I, I know Kent would agree to me with me, uh, they're talking essentially about uh, Yelmslev's semiotics. And Yelmslev, uh, who wrote uh, Prolegomena to a Theory of Language. Uh, language is, I think, his only book that's been translated to English. Uh, when he talks about things, uh, signs always exist in context in relation to other signs. Uh, no signs exist by themselves. It's actually not super possible for that to happen. So uh, the, 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 the way signs function uh, is... Uh, how to put it? Let me. Uh, I'll, I'll read. I'll read a little bit. Uh, a sign, in short, is not some mark or gesture with intrinsic qualities. An arrow might not always be a sign, 
but is what functions as a sign in a given context. For a sign function to exist, then, there must be, again, in Yelmsled's terminology, an expression and a content. A sign function thus exists between these absolutely inseparable terminals, for the terminals constituting a sign function, the sign expression and the sign content, Yelmsled gives the technical name of functives. Uh, his semiotics essentially carries on that signs themselves aren't necessarily just simply the mark, that there is a gesture associated, uh, what Deleuze, I think, would call uh, a bit of the sense of uh, sensation that goes with any of those. And that is ultimately what is recorded on the body without organs. None of those signs are singular. None of them exist alone. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no alone moment. There, there are so many of them. It's a deep hyper-multiplicity of signs that exist on the BWO. And the relation of those signs to each other is how we see them. So when I see... Uh, on the sign system, when when uh, a trait such as black hair is seen, I have a million relations in my head as I say that that are part of me saying that or speaking of that sign. It doesn't exist in a vacuum ever. There's no singular. That specific sign may be considered to be singular, but it doesn't exist in a singular way. It exists in relation only to all the other signs around it. It's the nature of partial objects. A partial object can't exist on its own, but it also isn't a whole thing. It's funny because I feel like I got I got the answer, but then every time I feel like I had the answer, then it's like, no, that's not the answer. But it's, 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 BWO, but... right, has a very specific definition. We know what the BWO is. We know what um, the desiring machine is, right? That those are. I'm just asking for like a specific. This is the word that they use for this thing. Before we get to a space of putting our interpretations or definitions or interrelations onto it, just like vocabulary word. So yeah. like, would it be fair to say that a physical trait would fall under a sign? And then, then we could have a whole discussion about all the things that we put onto those things in relation to everything else. So, so the answer would be yes. A physical trait is a partial object and partial objects are what make connections. Now, it may not be the thing that generates the sign. So, um, okay. So let's say I'm my eye and the sensation I have looking at uh, curly red hair. Uh, the sensation I have with that, not the curly red hair, but the connection and the sensation are what is recorded as the sign. So the again, this is uh, the way Yelmslev talks about things, expression and content, the sensation and the thing that is combined to make the sign. That's what's recorded. Literally just having that hair isn't itself a sign. Like the hair itself is just a, is a, is just a thing. A rock is just a thing. But the sign is the connection that's made. Physical traits are partial objects. Everything is a partial object. There's a million let me, of them. Let me jump in here. So we've got to talk about what not just what physical traits do, but what they are, right? So typically we're talking about something like I don't know. Um, let's use the curly hair example. So there's the hair machine curling in that. There's an assemblage that exists in relation to that. This is why it's kind of tough with traits because we're moving into like, we, we risk moving into categorization, which can get us in, right, losing water. We have a lot of thoughts on categorization, but there are partial objects involved in 
um, something like curly hair that exists in relation to other partial objects. In this sense, there are functionalities, functionalisms there with relation to the body without organs. So we do have signs. And there are territories, right? There are effects and intensities that not only um, can be seen in the, the hair curling, right? There's an effect there. There's a subjectivity for the hair machine uh, in relation to other machines. Now, I think where this is moving is into codification of desires in that, which will start to get us into the piercing and stuff, where something like um, the eye's perception of that is pretty important, because then it becomes a question of right the, the codification of desires and the semiotic chains there. I, th I think that's where the question might be moving. Yeah, and it's a tough, and Rose, the, what you're asking is also a really difficult thing to break down because as we talk about it, and as you keep asking, I keep realizing that the question itself, a, a physical trait, and as I talk about curly hair, those are already actually fairly whole objects. It, the question is how much can we break it down? Where are the actual desiring machines functioning? Where are the connections being made? What is the partial object? Uh, curly hair, for me, for example, is... A, a specific thing versus other people who have probably different standards of what curliness is to uh, the point that was made that there's, there's a lot of stuff happening there. The goal would be to break it down even further and say, let's remove anything that's a semiotic or an assumed global variant or any of these things and, and break it down to the point where the literal connections are happening and the connections are happening between extremely partial objects that themselves hold no meaning. Uh, in and of itself, there are connections all the time that are happening. And so the signs get conditioned out of this connection and recorded. It's a very difficult question to answer because basically uh, between Saucer and Yelmslev and the dozens of other semioticians who came before Deleuze that they absolutely take from, and on top of it, the entire basically dissertation that is uh, difference and repetition pretty much on this subject, trying to answer that question is tough. Um, the, the closest I can come to specifically what's in Antiodipus is the goal would be to try to remove what we consider to be global objects or try to understand that the globe or the, uh, assumptions behind things are what we are pretending give things shapes, but not instead the shapes given to us through this process and they're given to us in our own subjectivity and experience to them are given to us by the process of desiring machines connecting and disconnecting and recording. And that's a really difficult thing to sort of back into, given that it kind of stands against, I would say, most of the sense de la vie of America or the philosophy of our society in general. So what would a baby consider its, its mother's breast as? What is that to a baby? It, it's just just breast. Like just, and not even breast. It's so, just, okay. go, ahead, go ahead, Jack. So they're moving away from this idea of talking about what things are to what things do. So like with the baby, you for them, right, the, the mother's breast, you're talking about a partial object, right? The mouth machine, just this is the example they go back to again. It's a famous example in psychoanalytic discourse. The mouth machine attaches to the breast machine, right? They're getting into this thing where it's not necessarily, and this is important because now we're getting into the point about consciousness and unconsciousness. It's not necessarily that the baby 
wants to go, uh, wants their mouth machine to connect to the breast machine. What Deleuze and Guadi are getting is that at a molecular level, desiring production is connecting the mouth and the breast machine. This is really important because not only does this challenge like ideas of intent on that, but one thing they're trying to argue here is that the unconscious is producing us, or that that very production is itself kind of the unconscious, right? Deleuze will say later on that one of the main theses of this book is that the unconscious is a factory. It's constantly producing. So the point is to say here that the baby is not necessarily producing this, but the baby is produced in this um, connectivity of the breast machine and the mouth machine. And this is going to get important because, right, there's a lot of psychoanalytic discourse built around how to understand something like the, the baby's relationship with the, the mother, the mouth, and the breast, and how to take that in terms of things like transfers and that. There's a lot of critical engagement happening right there, simply in that example. And and to continue that, the, the think through it from, let's say, the position of the baby, just freshly born. Uh, the, the first thing any doctor does, anyone does, is they take it right to the mother. As soon as they get through all the process of like, you know, cleaning, weighing, all that stuff, right to the mother, the baby's freaking out and it's crying and screaming and it's making like sucking motions. It's a really weird thing to watch, super weird to watch. And they take it right over the mom and they immediately move to the breast. And the baby doesn't at any point, uh, it, it doesn't see anything, it doesn't know what it's doing, but the mouth machine connects to the breast machine. And the mom makes this happen uh, uh, often. Um, but that, that connection essentially is this first time of like a desiring machine making a connection in a baby's existence. And the experience that's recorded is effectively satisfaction. There's thing happened that doesn't have any signs, it doesn't know anything, but it just has this recording of like, oh, this, that worked out for me, make a mark. And then that remark gets repeated a lot. Uh, baby drinks a lot of breasts or drinks a lot of formula or whatever it is. Uh, over time, it starts to learn to associate things and start to see, oh, I see X. My eye connects to breast, I connects to mommy. They, you start as a baby to connect these things and put to them relations. Whereas over time, I know my son's uh, getting almost out of the age of breastfeeding, but he completely is going through the phase of like knowing feed and he talks about it and he asks for understands mommy's the only one that can do it and all of these relations that he has with her they're not that he like has these desires or setups it's that these are essentially how he's related all of these signs that have been created on his body without organs and if you take that and ex and just uh, I don't want to say extrapolate because they use it negatively, but if you think through all of the millions of desiring machines that are trying to connect in a baby's life through all of his life for 40 years of mine, it's the same situation. Uh, it may not be breasts in, the, in literally the same way, but it's all of the same kind of, I have all of these representations that have been etched on my body without organs, all of these signs, all of these connections that I'm seeing, all the relations of those signs. And that's basically when I get produced after the fact. I get to pretend that all of that and all these experiences are mine and I chose, but actually I was manufactured by all of these connections that have happened. Oh, uh, and to Aeon's point, uh, an ant can breastfeed or a wet nurse or, or uh, you know, all kinds of people, older, older sisters, like they, 
the history of uh, all of these things, and that's actually a lot of Deleuze and Guattari's point is the the deal with Oedipus is it is being prescriptive and saying that the reason that uh, we have all these problems is because the family is falling apart. Uh, you know, Mayor conservatives even saying that today, that the reality is we need this Oedipalization because if you're not Oedipalized, it's damaging. The, the success of things right now is because of this strong family. And their answer is really simple. It's like, no, the strong family exists in this very tiny bit. The reality is it's a contingent event that is happening now based on social historical events that have been taking place over time in large scale social machines that we've got it backwards. That's uh, how I understand it at least. So uh, just really quick, the final paralogism is that of the afterward, which we've been pointing at and actually talking about pretty significantly this entire time. Um, essentially, it is a combination of the previous uh, problems sort of put uh, together and placed. Uh, the Holland gives a very simple few sentences on this. Uh, the delegation of social repression under capitalism to the nuclear family, thus makes it appear as if there were an autonomous psychic repression originating inside of the Oedipus complex, which would only afterward get extended to social repression in society at large through processes of sublimation and transference. But here, where the political implica implications of the Oedipal misrepresentation of desire become clear, for, quote, if psychic repression did bear on incestuous desires, it would gain a certain independence and primacy in relation to social repression. And, as they go on to say, accepting this primacy would, would constitute a justification for psychic repression, a justification that makes psychic repression move into the foreground and no longer considers the problem of social repression anything more than secondary. Uh, the nature of the psychoanalyst who goes in and edipalizes the patients is that they believe, and they are told, that the the need for repression is there. You naturally have these awful, awful desires that would be just destructive to everything. So we have to put it in, in lock. If we didn't, society would explode. And their, their argument is simple. It is actually no. The repression comes from society and is the reason for all of these things and is the reason even for the desire itself being placed there in the first place. And... Uh, basically reversing it. And the afterward, uh, again, a lot of their, uh, a lot of their stuff has this odd kind of meta sensation to it where they talk about the subject who believes that it, it did all of the things that came before it. Uh, the afterward is essentially an extension of that where the repression believes afterwards that it is necessary and that if it did not exist, society would fall apart, even though it's society that actually created the repression in the first place. Uh, and it's a fantastic critique on not just uh, Oedipus, but I think a great deal of what we consider to be personal problems, uh, uh, disabilities, uh, mental illnesses, uh, antisocial behavior, all of those things that we feel you have to be cured in order to save society. Uh, instead, uh, it's the the paralogism of the afterward in, in act. So, okay, let me play off of what you said then, bro. So, with the point of retrospection, an easy way to understand this is kind of like. So we're talking about events of production, right? Is the meaning of those events 
simply in their place within something of a, a representation, right? So is the meaning of the event in the Oedipal representation? No, it's in the event, right? This is why the Saussurian Heshmelvian move is important. Meaning's not in the signified. Meaning is in the content and expression for Heshmelv. And we're not going to get into where Guattari takes this because we don't have that kind of... Life is not long enough, unfortunately. But the, the point being that meaning is not in the signified. It's not transcendent in that sense. It's not outside of things, right? It's not um, in their categories. It's in the event. So this is important because in some sense, okay, I'll use a little bit of Foucault here. Foucault notes of Deleuze's logic of sense that it's almost a, a hallmark of philosophy to understand philosophers after Plato, and maybe even before Plato, insofar as they differentiate themselves from Plato. One of the main moves that Deleuze and Guadagni are making not only in this book, but throughout their work. And this is why I'm making the distinction between what things are and what they do, why we can't really engage traits in terms of the categorical, and more importantly, in terms of being in the sense of the, of a fixed being, being as outside of things, being as, um, I don't want to say abstract, because I'm afraid that's going to mis lead to misinterpretations but being as a part or cut off from events to be really direct. So this is really important for Deleuze and Guattari because when they talk about functionality, when they talk about how things like what we want to call traits are produced, that's where being and meaning will be. And in that too, becoming. So we, we don't want to deal with like what the essence of something is as though it exists outside of and irreconcilably with things. We want to deal for Deleuze and Guattari with events and their productions. Yeah, and Paul actually says it really nicely. The afterwards works on another level. Uh, Freud says the representation comes before the desire itself. The desire constitutes itself out of a lack of representation of some sort. Uh, hello, Lacan. The answer, as we hinted at all session, is that desire, the three syntheses, partial objects and materialist production, comes first, then representation. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. To, and I hope the preceding thing doesn't get us, because it got Sartre into trouble, but to, to play off of that, we still have to recognize too, though, that yes, you're absolutely correct. To put the representation before production is a mistake, but we need to recognize too that what the reproduction can do is be inscribed and can re, and can produce, right? So there's a, there is risk here with, um, with it. So even though it's paralogistic, it's not unreal. It still has the uh, the capacity to affect, and it very much does. Uh, Misha says, uh, one thing I'm still not totally getting, also about the semiotics and the term partial versus global objects. I follow the meaning found in the event or the encounter or the action, but I have a difficult time understanding where lines are drawn. Is a puzzle a puzzle or 300 puzzle pieces? Sorry if the question is too broad. Um, it, it's, it's it's not a too broad of a question. It's, it's a difficult thing because uh, the... We're now talking about things that we technically can't directly talk about. Uh, this is where we start talking about the, the molecularization of signs and representations, because the design machine dealing with partial objects doesn't understand or know what a thing is connected to or a machine is connected to. It doesn't know that mommy is the one feeding baby. That's not really how it works. So the, the way we need to think about partial 
uh, versus global is global objects are things uh, that I can talk about. And partial objects are things that are uh, almost a step below that. Uh, if I say I have a puzzle piece, it's not so much that that's a partial object. Uh, the, the part of the puzzle piece that connects to the rest of the puzzle, uh, that one little tab that's a little funny looking like thing, like shape funny, that'd be closer to a partial object than anything. And I don't actually know if that has a name. Probably has a name. Has to have a name. Uh, but let's take puzzle specifically because it's it's that you connect one to another. The partial objects are the ones that are connecting. Uh, the overall mommy is connecting to baby in the large sort of you know reality of things, but that's not how desiring machines function. Desiring machines, baby doesn't desire mommy. That's not how it works. Desire is created much earlier than that. That assumes a subject. That assumes a global subject and an individual even. It's far before that. So it's not so much that baby is a puzzle compi comprised of a lot of uh, uh, pieces, but it's that tiny little parts of those parts of those parts are connecting all the time to everything. And the relation of the parts that it connects to is what it starts to determine is mommy. I, I think I can give it to you simply, right? The molecular and the molar reciprocally determinant. With the global persons, we start getting into representations of all that. I don't think that made it simpler. <laughs> oh, I tried. I got it into two sentences. Isn't that the, the definition of breviloquence? It's, 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 it is accurately uh, short. I, I don't know about simple. Uh, simple is a, possibly a different uh, way to go about it. It's the, the, the partial object concept is, is difficult, um, and it's really worth getting into. Uh, I, would, I would recommend Saussure for sure. That wasn't an intentional joke. Um, and uh, Yomslev as well. Uh, we will be getting into this uh, in, our, in our continuing reading of AO. They go into this in depth and there are a lot of in depth parts to this. Uh, basically what we just went over uh, is the short version of basically all of section two. So a uh, chapter two. So um, it's really expanded on in some significant ways and we will get through that in the main reading. Um, and uh, they do break down a lot, but it is uh, it is a difficult one to grasp. It's uh, again, uh, this like uh, last week's. These are not easy discussions. If you Google these things online, there's a handful of things. Like uh, Kent uh, sent over the five paralogisms uh, grid, which is great um, from uh, what's his name, uh, anarchist without content, uh, who's done a few of those. There's simply not a lot written on these, and I wanted to make sure we got something down because. Uh, it's it's a challenge a lot of people are facing. Um, any other last questions or thoughts before I start closing out this reading? I have a final question. So when we were talking about uh, just that Oedipus uh, concept, that is considered being like oppressive or repressive because it's like imposing something on the BWO that wasn't necessarily there in the first place. And on, on the uh, desiring machines themselves, because it basically uh, is, is poorly putting together how desire is produced and created and assigning things to it that just simply isn't there. Intentionality, uh, uh, all kinds of things, rules around how desire works that simply isn't there in that first step. And so the Oedipal complex in Oedipus, when we start forcing people into it or the nuclear family, and we start having these discussions, 
because it starts forcing people to look at the world in a very specific biunivocal and particular way. Uh, and you can see this extend out through a lot of just general fascistic beliefs. Uh, the What happens is it starts forcing us ourselves to change how our desire functions and it gives us complexes. And the Oedipus complex is part of that, is, is one of those. Um, and the damage it does at a psychic level and the repression it causes and the way it forces us to view the world in a biunivocal rather than polyvocal way is really what they're getting at here. That uh, because it forces us to organize our signs very particularly, it forces us to forget about where our desire really comes from. And it makes us say what we need to be and what we ought to be. It starts damaging us. It's a very short kind of shitty new agey sounding version of it, but that's a lot of what they're talking about here in the paralogisms. Any other questions? I'm gonna, we're going to keep chatting about this after. I, I just need to close out the recording. So thank all of you for joining. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on uh, Patreon, DGQC, if you want to support what we're doing here. Would be lovely. And as always, we're pretty much always around on Discord. We're trying to do more things uh, generally. So thank all of you for coming.